Well, good morning, fellowship. It is so good to see your faces to be together this morning. And for those online, we're glad that you're joining us this morning as well. It's been a long morning already, a really good morning, um, but I'm kind of filled up. It's a good thing. Um, you're in a good place this morning. I'm glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome. And whether you've been here forever, if you were here at the first time we ever met, uh, if you come every week, or if this is your first time, or however you got here, you're here on purpose this morning, or you're watching on purpose this morning. God has you right where he wants you. So God, would you give us listening ears this morning? God, would you help us to tune into your spirit what you might have to say to us this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, the elders lead this church. We, we're an elder-led church, Fellowship Bible Church is, and I am so grateful for the elders. What a difficult year to lead a church through. My goodness. And they've done an incredible job. It's so comforting as a leader here to draft in their wake um, knowing that they're prayerfully seeking the Lord and making wise decisions for the, for the good of all of us. And so one of those decisions with COVID cases on the decline is we're finally back to kids' services. Two weeks. In two weeks. Sorry, that was a little premature. You're like, wait, today? No, in two weeks' time. Um, we'll have children's services again. And so we're so excited about that. It's gonna open the door for so many people to come back to church, um, and we're really pumped. A couple of things you need to know about that. One, it makes registering to worship as an adult in this service way more important. I know it's easy to get lax with that, um, but we ask you, please do that. They, our children's team, um, they're, they're putting things together. They have some kind of algorithm or something that basically, as long as you register for yourself as an adult here, they'll know how many people to uh, be ready for in the children's ministry. I don't know how to, they do it. I don't want to know but they know. And so please do that. And we do that in an effort to just not make it cumbersome for you to have to, uh, you know, register all your children and everything like that. So just register for yourself uh, and come. And the second thing, this is really important, is this means it's time to step up again, family. It's time to step up and lead and serve our children. We need leaders. Our children's ministry needs leaders that are going to come and serve. And so a big value around fellowship for a long time has been worship one, serve one. I want to encourage you to think about that. Consider that as an option. That means simply means come and worship with the body one service and then one service. Go and serve, whether it be the children in the children's ministry, which is the big need right now, um, or maybe it's back in the tech booth uh, with Chris Tucker and his team. Everybody turn around and say, hi, Chris Tucker. Wave at him. He loves, he loves the attention. Um, Chris, is, Chris and his team do a great job. Maybe that's your fit. But we want you to get plugged in serving because there's blessing in that. There's benefit in that. God wants to grow you in your walk with him as you serve. And so that's a big piece of what we do around here. So children's ministry, email Robin Yates. Do it, please. Do it for your kids' sake and for the kids next to you. Um, okay, so the last announcement we have is about elder candidates. 
And uh, Mickey Rapier, our directional leader, is gonna make that announcement. So Mickey, take it away. Hello, Fellowship. I have some great news for you. We are just about a year away from opening the new Bentonville campus, and we've just crossed the $15 million mark toward reaching the goal of developing this new campus and paying for it by December of 2022. We're not paying any interest on this project because of your generosity at this point. Thank you. And in this light, thank you for faithfulness in giving each week during COVID and your extraordinary generosity to the gift. Through the gift, we were able to donate generously to ministries locally, regionally, and globally. Today, we have three new elder candidates to present to you. We're a church led by elders, and our current board has prayerfully sought the face of God as we considered all nominees presented. Please meet your new elder candidates. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Ed Parrish, and my wife is Guanaco Parrish. We've been married for 36 years, and we have three children and three grandchildren. We've lived in Northwest Arkansas now for 21 years, and I remember upon our arrival how Fellowship embraced us, and we made this our church home. I'm honored to be nominated as a candidate for elder, and it would be such a pleasure to uh, serve you here at Fellowship in that capacity. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Joe Ross. I've been married to my wonderful wife, uh, Catherine Ross, for 42 years. We have four children, uh, all grown now, and seven grandchildren. I grew up in Northeast Arkansas, but we've been in Fayetteville for the past 30 years. I worked as a radiation oncologist and took care of cancer patients at both Narti and Highlands Oncology until I retired three years ago. I'm honored and humbled both uh, by this nomination uh, to become an elder, and I look forward to serving both you and Christ in this endeavor, if elected. Hello, my name is Jim Ants. I've been married to my wonderful wife, Margaret, for 36 years. We have two adult sons, Jimmy and John, and one beautiful nine-month-old granddaughter, Hannah Lee. We've lived in Springdale for the past 34 years, and for all of that time, I've worked at Harps Food Stores, first in IT, and then in finance. We've been attending fellowship for the past 27 years. I am deeply humbled and honored to be nominated as a candidate for the Elton Board. With God's help, I will do my best to serve you in that capacity. Thank you for your consideration and may God bless you. Thank you gentlemen for your willingness to be set forth as candidates for the Office of Elder. It is a tremendous responsibility to be an elder at fellowship and your willingness to be considered speaks highly of your character, integrity, and walk with Christ. And now we have one more thing to ask of you, Fellowship. If you are a member of our church, between now and February 22nd, please affirm these candidates by visiting the link below and follow the instructions found there. Thank you for your prayers and for participating in the elder nomination process. This is an important reoccurring event in the life of our church family. God bless you all. Hey, good morning, fellowship. Would you stand as we hear from the word of the Lord? We're gonna read a passage out of Joshua 5, just the very end to set us up for where we'll be in Joshua 6 today. As I read this, just let it wash over you and set your heart to worship the Lord. 
When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I'm at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. The place we're standing this morning is holy. Let's take off our physical sandals, metaphysical sandals, and worship the Lord this morning.
light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. We believe, we make miracle work, the promise keep light in the darkness, my God, that is who you Oh, my Lord. 
Father and Son and Holy Spirit, you are the triune God and there is no one like you. We confess, we bow the knee and we bow the heart to lesser gods. And, and we thank you for the gift of worship that retunes our vision towards you. We need you. You are holy and just, you are righteous and good. Your word says that you're abounding in loving kindness. And right now in grace, we'd ask you to open up your word to us because we want to see you clearly so that we can respond rightly. So your people stand before you now with eager hearts, asking you to speak. And all your people said, amen. Well, how are you this morning? Can I tell you, it's good to see you this week. Where were you last week? You just need to know that 8 a.m. set the attendance record for fellowship last weekend in the snowstorm. It's good to see you say to yourselves, enough of that. Let's get back. And so it's good that you're here this morning. If you're online uh, live streaming right now, thanks for being faithful. Uh, thanks for continuing to worship with the body of Christ that God's put you in and, and choosing to participate even where you are at home. Hey, his name could have been Jacob. Could have been Jacob. He's 22 years old and he's the, in the prime of his life. He was born in the desert. He's lived as a nomad. He's been a wanderer with absolutely no homeland. Now, he has heard from his parents and their generation about the stories of Yahweh and the way that God delivered his people from slavery decades ago. But none of those stories are, are told with joyful celebration. They're told in mournful regret. Because along with those stories, he's heard about the story of his parents' generation who refused to obey Yahweh and enter the promised land decades ago. And as a consequence, God took that generation and brought them back to the desert and had them do a journey that looked over and over and over again until the last of that adult generation died off. Joshua, or Jacob's not sure, but he hunches that his people have observed 90 funerals a day for the last 40 years. This has been a hopeless time. And in this hopeless time, even his parents' generation decided uh, not to observe the right of circumcision for their sons. I mean, why would they? What's the point? Circumcision, the whole point of it was a sign of the promise given to Abraham, and they would not inherit the promise and go in the land. No, they had a long, slow journey of hopelessness. But times are changing, and hope is springing up in the camp. There's a new leader in the camp. His name is Joshua, and the people have rallied around him and They've pledged to follow Yahweh wholeheartedly and actually enter and take possession of the land. And God, well, God is so good. He chose to do a miracle right in front of their eyes. Jacob no longer heard the stories of miracles. He watched one happen, and it was awesome in the truest sense of the word. It was, it was terrifying and wonderful all at the same time. God parted the Jordan River right in front of him, just like the stories he had heard about with Moses and the Red Sea, but this one was different. This one, the, the Jordan River was at flood stage, and, and the priests actually had to put their foot 
into the water first, and then the water would part. And it didn't part in front of them. No, it parted about 16 miles upstream at Adam. Joshua said to himself, I've got to remember this lesson, that even though I can't see it right away, God is working upstream. And I need to trust that he'll open the way at the right time. And he did. The waters parted in front of him and the people went across. And Joshua said to himself, the works of Yahweh can be trusted. I'll never forget that. But just to make sure they didn't, they took stones out of the Jordan River and they stacked them in the promised land. The river closed up behind them and now they had a forever memorial reminding them to never forget the works of Yahweh. Joshua the hope was so palpable. He pulled the people together and commanded them to celebrate the ancient rites of, of Israel. And so they celebrated Passover together in the land. And then he had them perform the ancient rite of circumcision on their sons. Jacob doubted the wisdom of that call. It sure incapacitated 100% of the fighting troops right before their battle with Jericho. You see, from Jacob's perspective, he had a raging river behind him and the stones of remembrance behind him and a, a battle of Jericho in front of him. They were now a people stuck between the rocks and a hard place. And now we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Now imagine this scene now from Joshua's perspective. He's on the eve before their battle. His troops are healing up in the camp behind him. He's out for a long walk and talk with God. And there he sees a man with a drawn sword. Don't you know that his hand went to his sword as he asked the logical question that was on his mind, are you for us or for them? That is a logical question. It's just the wrong question in this situation. Look at verse 14. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. Folks, this is no ordinary soldier. Joshua is encountering a heavenly warrior. So at a bare minimum, this is a, an angelic captain of the armies of the Lord. But more likely, Joshua's encountering God himself. This is what's known as a theophany in scriptures, an appearance of God before the incarnation. You see the way Joshua will worship him later and the way this, this heavenly warrior will receive the worship and you realize he is meeting with God. And that explains this visitor's answer. You remember the simple question? Are you for us or for them? And the answer is neither. I'm God and I have come. Don't miss God's point. God does not come to take sides. He comes to take over. This is his plan, his world, 
his battle, his agenda. We tend to ask God to join our ventures, don't we? But God is the sovereign creator king. We don't invite him to join us on our journey. Uh-uh. He graciously invites us to join him on his plan and agenda. Jericho is Yahweh's battle. And Israel has been invited to join him. And Joshua, he gets that. He sees the holiness of Yahweh on one hand and the grace of this invitation on the other, and he responds rightly, and the response is called worship. Look at how verse 14 continues. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. And how's this for a great line? And Joshua did so. This episode between uh, the Jordan River closed up behind them and the Jericho uh, battles in front of them underscores kind of this major sense of themes that we've been seeing in the series of Joshua. If I had to just in my feeble way summarize the book of Joshua, I would say there's three anchoring truths that we've seen over and over each week. We've seen the presence of God, haven't we? We've seen the promises of God. And at the same time, we've seen our participation with God. And all three of these truths actually happen at Yahweh's appearance with Joshua at this moment outside of Jericho. God is saying, I am here and I'm all powerful. And then he's going to invite Israel to participate with him and what he is going to do with Jericho. Now listen, the last four weeks of our sermon series in Joshua, we've been kind of moving at a 25 mile per hour pace. We've taken four weeks to look at just the entrance into the land. Well, now we're gonna go from school zone speed to freeway speed. And in two weeks, we're gonna cover all of the military conquests. And we'll do that by Sam Hannon and I highlighting two military battles for the next two weeks. Let's jump into this first battle in chapter six, verse one. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out, no one came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Joshua is still alone with God at this point, but even in the text here, I, I see two contradictory things that I think he must be feeling too. I mean, on one hand, the text says that Jericho was tightly shut up. And on the other hand, it says, see, I've given you the victory. And to me, that sounds like an oxymoron. To me, that looks like when I'm out on the Bentonville trails and I see one of those manhole lids that say sanitary sewer. Like they just don't go together. The fortress is impenetrable. See, you've got this. I've given it to you. This might be what Joshua actually saw as he overlooked ancient Jericho. Jericho today is the oldest and lowest city on the earth. It's near the Dead Sea. In Joshua's day, it was the strongest and most fortified city in Canaan. 
You know, there have been four major archaeological digs done on ancient Jericho in the last hundred years. One done in the 50s was led by an archaeologist named Kathleen Kenyon, no relation to Beth. And she and her team uncovered the the Jericho walls and the remains of that. And the conclusion as archaeologists they came to is that an outer wall was perhaps 20 to 26 feet high and 14 feet wide. And then they had an inner wall inside of that that was seven feet wide. Yeah, Jericho looks impregnable. By the way, the archaeologists of that 1950s dig came to the conclusion that some kind of major catastrophe happened because it looked like the walls had a sudden collapse. But none of them believed in the biblical record and said it couldn't have been Joshua chapter 6. Jericho was about... uh, six square acres in uh, circumference there and uh, in size, and it could hold a population of about 1,200 people. It would take about, it's about a mile to walk around Jericho. And this impregnable fortress was God's first battle for his rookie army. No pre-conference games lined up in the SEC for to pad the victory toll. And this is the battle strategy he gives them, verse 3. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. This is how Israel will participate with God in his battle. Now again, now I need you to drop yourself back into 22-year-old Jacob's mind. He has called a, a military briefing to announce the battle strategy. You know that's a good move. You're wondering how you're gonna take this. And this is what you hear your general say. March around the city once for six days. Okay, reasonable. Take a marching band. Not the whole marching band. Just take the trumpet section. Seven priests will do. On the seventh day, march around it seven times. Then have the priests blow the horn. When they blow it the last time for a long sound, All of you should just stand there and shout. When you do, it'll, both walls will fall down. And then you'll go straight in and take the city. Talk to me. How's your confidence level, Jacob, right now? Because this is your battle plan and your life depends on it. But this is how God says they will participate with him, which means it is going to require faith to join God. Listen, the New Testament, particularly the book of Hebrews, often ties the conquest of uh, Canaan in the Old Testament as a parallel to our experience as believers as we grow in our Christian life. It's called sanctification. And we too have been given some very illogical battle strategies to join God in the Christian life. Don't believe me? How about when Jesus says, love your enemies, 
and do good to those who persecute you. That's illogical. What about when God tells us to forgive those, everyone, even those who don't repent and don't have any regrets at the wrong they've done to you? That doesn't make sense. How about when God tells us to be joyful always, to pray continuously, and actually give thanks in all things? What? What about when he tells us to give generously from the first of our income, even before you've paid the bills, even before you know the unseen expenses that may come this month, give and join God as an act of faith? That's illogical. What about when he says, serve the least of these as a means to becoming the greatest in the kingdom of God? And to sum it all up, Jesus says, do you want to pursue the good life? Then lose your life as a way to find it. Die to self as a path to God's greatest reward of walking with him. See, don't you see? The Christian life is not just hard. It's impossible. It's impossible apart from the work of God happening within us through the power of his Holy Spirit. Remember, the battle belongs to the Lord. And we are called to believe in him, not believe in ourselves. And by the way, just to say that makes you weird in our culture. Because our culture is one that constantly preaches a gospel of believe in yourself. Even our Christian culture of self-help is woven with that message. We live in a Christian subculture with books that tell us to, girl, go wash your face. Get out the negative. You got this kind of spirituality. That is not biblical faith. No, biblical faith puts its trust not in who I am and what I can do, but on who God is and what God does. Listen, we will only have a faith that is as secure as the foundation that we build it upon. And Christianity is not a call to put faith in faith. We're to put faith in the promises and the character of God. His presence, his promise, we participate with him by faith. We can then join him with some courage and strength in the same way that that 22-year-old Jacob was called to do. Let's go back to Joshua's battle in his day. Chapter 6, verse 16, we're reading actually the battle itself. The seventh time around when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that's in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go in to his treasury. Besides just reading the details, were you caught and sobered at any moment? Did you shudder with terror at any moment in that reading? 
If not, we weren't looking closely. You know, the battle of Jericho should never be trivialized into only a children's Bible story. It is a story that children can benefit from, but it's far more grim and grand than that. And things like Jericho marches should never be hijacked as a means for personal or political gain. No. The battle at Jericho was a real, historical, military battle. And Yahweh accomplished his purposes on this planet in very grim and gritty and violent ways. Look at the summary of the battle in verse 21. The Israelites devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, with all of its livestock included. Now we shudder, don't we? Thinking and feeling people who approach this text honestly wonder what's going on. The words destroyed and devoted come from the Hebrew word harem. The word literally means to be under a ban, as though that something or someone would never be used for any other purpose ever again except exclusively for God. That's why the New Living Translation chooses to translate harem as destroyed as an offering. Eugene Peterson in his book, or his translation, The Message, translates the word a holy curse, meaning that Israel's obedience to God brought about wholesale slaughter of Jericho's men and women and, yes, children. And that's why reading the book of Joshua has called famous atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens to say when you read the Old Testament, you can only walk away concluding that the Jewish and Christian God is a moral monster at best. But we believe that this is the word of God. And so somehow we have to look at harem, the holy curse, and deal with it. Why would God put Canaan under a holy curse? Well, back in Genesis chapter 15, back 600 years before Jericho's battle, God promised Abraham that he would give him this land for he and all of his descendants, the nation of Israel. But he said that he was waiting. He was waiting, Genesis 15, and I quote, until the sins of the Amorite is full. So in other words, giving the land to Israel was also a purging of the land from sin. You know, God did not authorize the wholesale genocide of all non-Jewish people. So the Israel army during the time of the conquest, when they came to a city that was outside the land, they would offer that city terms of peace. But when they came to the city inside the land, it was under a holy curse. That's because the religion of the Canaanites was both violent and vile. 
The Old Testament goes on to describe the religion of the Canaanites, including human sacrifice and sexual worship to the gods of Baal, including the god of Molech, who's pictured there on the screen. The Old Testament says that often those human sacrifices were of infant children. Archaeologists have dug the, uh, and the digs of those sacred sites and found human remains, including those most commonly of children. One historian calls the religion of Canaan so viral. Is that not a word that we understand in the pandemic? So viral that it always infected the nations outside of it rather than the nations and their religions affecting it. And we know that's true because Israel didn't drive out all of the Canaanites and they caught the infection, which is why uh, years later in places like Megiddo, you see Jewish worship sites to the pagan god of Molech and gods of Baal and including the remains of children. Now, God was purging the land before the people possessed it. Eugene Peterson says it this way in his introduction to the book of Joshua and the message. He says, we look back from our time in history and think how horrible. But if we were able to put ourselves back in the 13th century BC, we might see it differently. For that Canaanite culture was a snake pit of child sacrifice and sacred prostitution. Practices ruthlessly devoted to using the most innocent and vulnerable members of the community, babies and virgins, just to manipulate their gods for their own gain. Yeah, punishing and purging was one of God's purposes in the conquest, but it wasn't the only purpose. You've got to turn that hard side of the coin over and look at the other side, which is God was also providing and protecting his people. So in the book of Joshua, Yahweh is cleansing a land, but he's doing that to then repopulate the land with a people who would pledge to worship him only. So providing Canaan was ultimately tied back to a promise that God made to Abraham 600 years before. And that promise would then apply to Israel and actually even turn around and bless the whole world, including Gentiles like you and me thousands of years later. Look at the way Deuteronomy chapter 9 says it before the people even got to the Jordan River. We read there that after the Lord your God has driven them, the Canaanites, out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. And then here's the other side of the coin. The Lord your God will drive them out before you. Why? To accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, the conquest of Jericho was just step one in God's master plan that would even include a salvation that would eventually touch folks like us in Northwest Arkansas. 
that God was providing for and protecting Israel so that she could then be a pipeline of blessing to all nations of the world as she showed the light of Yahweh, the one true God. You see, all of this started at God's first promise to one man named Abraham, where he promised to take Abraham, who had no children at the time, it was advanced in age, and make him into a great people called Israel. And then he would give them a very specific land, this promised land of Canaan. And then he would bless them so that they could be a blessing to every people group on the planet. Don't you see? When we look at Jericho, we see the justice of God and the mercy of God meeting in its most severe way until the New Testament. Where else have we seen the justice and the mercy of God meeting in its most severe form? The cross of Jesus Christ. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He still punishes and purges sin. That's why he sent his son as a substitution for us on our sin. And he still provides for and protects his people. That's why he seals us for salvation and puts his spirit within us when we place our faith in him. He is the God who is working out a grand plan. And yes, there are episodes that are more severe than my eyes can take in, but his mercy is also greater than my heart could ever understand. Let's look back at what God was doing as he accomplished this in Jericho. At least as a follower of Jesus, there are two key truths I hold on to. There's probably more, but two that are enough for me to say grace over this week. And the first one is whose battle it really is. We're reminded in chapter five, verse 13 and 14, when Joshua says, are you for us or for them? And he says, neither. God says, I'm for me. Because God won't break the first commandment. He will bow the knee to no other gods. He's for his own glory. And out of his grace, he invites us into that glory to join him and to participate with him. And clearly you see the presence of God when he says, I am now here in this battle. In chapter six, verse two, it says, then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Clearly, you see the promise of God in this battle. So, if God is at the center of God's great plans, who bears the weight for pulling off the work of God in your small life and in our big world? Yeah, God does. He's the prime mover. We join in with him. That truth causes faith, doesn't it? The kind of faith that just rests and relies on who God is and what God can do. But a resting faith is not a sleepy faith. And if you think it is, we've missed the second point of Jericho. And the second truth shows us how we participate or how we join God in what he's doing in life. We participate with God through a very active faith, don't we? I mean, just look at verse 20 of chapter six. 
The priests blew trumpets. Warriors shouted. The previous verse that we read said the warriors all shouted. Why did the warriors all shout rather than just having the charismatics do that and the more conservative over here? Because God told them all to shout. And then they joined by rushing in and taking the city. You cannot walk away from the story of the Bible and think that faith is just some intellectual agreement to a set of tenets that we nod at. No, you can't read the Bible honestly without walking away thinking that, oh, God, faith is an active participation with you. Lord, help me in my unbelief and grow my faith. I want to join you more. Our Christian walk is the same way. Have you noticed how the Apostle Paul likes to describe it as a walk of faith? There's a lot of metaphors he could have picked. He could have picked a, a barco lounger of faith. Uh, uh, the laying down position of faith. There is a resting in faith, but it is an active walk and a participation with what God is doing in our lives. We obey him and we rely. We obey his promises and commands and we rely on his presence. I think if I had to somehow summarize everything I'm seeing in chapter five and six, it would be this. We participate with the promise of God through faith and obedience. So now I turn it around to a question. For a guy like me who wants to walk with God this very week, if God gives me this week, how would we join God? How would we know that we're joining God where we live and work and play and do church and do life in the community? We would know it by the way we trust what God can do and obey him and his word. It's an active participation. Sam Hannon just said it much more eloquently, so I want to quote him. Two weeks ago, he said, faith is living at the intersection of promise and obedience. Isn't that good? So the crossing of the Jordan reminds me that God is working upstream. I just need to take the first step and trust him as I obey. But then the, the conquest of Jericho reminds me that the battle is the Lord's, that I join him in what he's doing through a trust that shows up in obedience. So now could we put that in front of the life that he's given you and me and ask him, he's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Would you close up by simply asking him, Holy Spirit, how do you want to apply this to my life at this part of the journey? Talk to him. Oh God, we believe your word. Help our unbelief. We want to trust you more by obeying what you showed us. We believe your word is good and it is life and it is true. Mold us by it. Empower us to walk in it.
obedience. It's trust in action. We obey because we trust God. Trust is not just an abstract thing. It's not just this belief, something we set up on the shelf and we pull down and we kind of look at on a Sunday and then we put back up and go on about our lives. No, that's not, that's not real belief. That's not real trust. Trust gets incarnated. It gets lived out. It gets embodied. We, it affects how we make our decisions, how we do what we do, how we live, how we enter, engage with those around us. And so we trust God in His way, in the way in which He wants to love people around us, through us. Yes? So we trust and obey. And the reason we obey is because we trust. And why do we trust? Because He is good. The reason to obey is because He is good and He has your best in mind and at heart. He loves you. He loves me. He wants to lead us to life, abundant life. So let's lean in. Let's listen. Let's trust. And let's let it leak out into our lives. Come out as obedience. As our benediction this morning, I want to sing the, the last verse of this song, Take My Life and Let It Be. And let it just be a prayer for each of us. God, just take our will. Because we trust you, we know that you're good. You want to lead us in the way everlasting. So take our will and just lead us. Would you do that? So sing it together. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine all. It shall be. send you out the back doors this morning uh, because we don't know what treachery lies above us that might slide off. Uh, so we want to send you out the back uh, this morning. And uh, as always, if you need prayer, we would love to pray with you and for you. Our prayer team is always available. To my left, you're right up front. Y'all have a blessed week. We love you.